suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned, some seem to have multiple lifespans, a few were once thought to be extinct in the region, others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch question and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Well, hello dear listener. Episode 322 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. Got the panel back this week and it's a few more days until Christmas, just a few sleeps. I, of course, am Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. Well, with me, whenever she can squeeze us in between flights and and work, <laughs> the working class, uh, Shay. Welcome back, Shay, the subversive. Thank you. And, jo- and Joe, the tech guy. Evening, all. Right, dear listener, if you're in the chat room, say hello. Dire Straits is there. How are you going? John, good to see you're there. If you're in the chat room, say hello. And if you're in the chat room, look, we've got lots of videos and different pictures that we'll be putting up on the screen. So I think as this podcast is evolving next year, there might be more and more videos and clips and pictures and things. So it'll become more of a visual experience, not just audio. But we'll try and always make it so that if you are listening to the podcast, you will understand what's going on, even if we are using a picture. But it'll just add a bit more to it. So... All right. Well, Shay, welcome back. First of all, you've been working in your job as a air hostess. Is that what? What's the technical term for your job? I think we prefer cabin crew or flight attendant now. Okay, good. Sorry, yes, I knew I was committing some sort of transgression <laughs> there. Yeah. Not not trolley dolly. Right. Not trolley. Right. Dolly. Or, or biscuit slinger. <laughs> right. And, and I was just curious. What's the atmosphere like in the planes? Are people more or less pleasant or angry than normal or what's it like there? Business as usual. I found them to be maybe uh, more tense. Certainly people never liked it when they had people sitting beside them, but they're even more annoyed about that now. Right. Okay. I would have thought most of the flights would be fairly full. It varies. I think Queenslanders actually aren't moving around that much, but I think lots of people are coming in. Right. So we're empty on the way out and then we're full coming back. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So I know my daughter is planning on coming up from Sydney and she was very nervous because you have to provide a, a clear COVID test that's no more than 72 hours old by the time you take the flight. And the problem was that it was taking longer than 72 hours to get the test. So it was one yeah. of those classic catch-22 situations. But she's got a test result back. It's negative. And she's going to be on a flight tomorrow night, so that'll be good. So it's just a really nervous time for a, normally a holiday. Does it, say it has to be PCR. I think so. I don't because you can get the rapid tests. Yeah, no, that wasn't pharmacy good or Woolies. No, I think it had to be something else. So it's quite a nervous time for everybody trying to get away and worried whether they're going to get on the flight. And then if they get on the flight, the idea that the guy in front of you, the row in front or behind might have COVID and therefore you are then put into quarantine 
Uh, that's scary. So yeah, yeah. Well, you know what was really interesting as I was having a conversation with my captain today, who was saying that people, what people are really fearful of, is Anastasia shutting the border. And I said, no, I think you'll find it's a, the deadly virus. Right. It's having people. Yep. Second deaths. Yeah. Well, no, uh, I think the su- southerners are worried about them shutting the border. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I understand it's a consideration, but I don't think Anastasia bears the whole brunt of it. Surely not mm. in this age of personal responsibility. My main worry would just be being forced into quarantine. I don't, the fact that somebody yeah. in another row had, and just out of an abundance of caution, I'm having to be in quarantine. I need to be in Sydney at the end of January, potentially. I think I might drive rather, rather than fly. I haven't mm. decided yet. So. Although I've noticed on the contact tracing thing, they've actually put it down to rows. Ah, okay. Yeah, I did see that. As well. Okay. So instead of the whole aeroplane. Yep, but it could yeah, be it the row in the front or behind. That's true. Yeah. yeah, that's true. It could be. That would be annoying. Hello in the chat yeah. room to Bronwyn, Essential Lord Don and Grant Clark. Right. Um, Grant says the wait time for visa to get into Australia is 8 to 20 months. That's out of China, I would assume, Grant. Is that the case? So, boy. That's a long wait time for a visa, yeah. Because there were people today going, we flew them into Sydney from Melbourne and they were going to Fiji, they were going to Canada. Yep. So there's a few people that are willing to risk it. Yep, yep. You can, yeah. Yeah. You can leave, I had, but getting back I in. I had a friend who <laughs> was due to come from the UK to Australia in March 2020. Uh, and this is the second year that he's now not been able to, or the third time he's been trying to plan the trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. And he's going, March 2022 is looking no better at the moment. Yeah, yep. All right, well, enough of our um, chit-chat about our COVID experiences. What are we going to do and talk about tonight? A little bit of an update on our Satanic Court case. We're going to talk a little bit further about what I was mentioning last week with my democracy rant. So hope you enjoyed that. I'm going to keep ranting about it for a little bit. Julian Assange, pork barrelling, oh, of course, Scott Morrison and what he's been up to, Sam Kerr and the way she shoulder-charged in Pitch Invader, or a whole crazy number of things plus COVID stuff. I look at the list and there's about 35 topics. I've checked with Joe and Shay. Neither of them has to get up early in the morning, so we're just going to keep going and see how many we get through. Yeah, so let's let's start off. First of all, the court case for religious satanic instruction in Queensland, and I got a f- message from the judge's associate early last week, which was, are you available on Friday, which is the Friday just gone, because the judge might be able to give his decision, and we were all available, but unfortunately the judge then said he wasn't able to do it. So it was close. I thought I was going to be able to give you a decision, but now it's not going to be until the new year. So by the time we get it in mid-January, that's going to be five months since the court case. So I don't know. Obviously I, the case had some there. It's taken five months. So, so anyway, sometime mid-January now, I would suspect for an answer on that one. So... Hang out for that. Other things that have happened, I had to visit a customer at QUT, Queensland University of Technology, and as I walked past our old Parliament House building, what did I spy but a nativity scene at the front? So, of course, I had to take a photo of that and obviously Christian nativity scene. And 
I've put that on the list for next year if we are successful with our satanic political action is to start working on nativity scenes and saying, well, if you want a Christian nativity scene somewhere. Now, I don't think we'll be able to do anything in Parliament House because it's essentially a law unto itself what they do in there. It's up to them what they do. But anyway, if I get if I get half a chance, then we'll be having a nativity scene with this character, which you can see on the screen. And... <laughs> That's a baby Baphomet. So hopefully that'll be one of the things we'll, we'll sort of look at next year you know, is, uh, is, is Christian nativity scenes and equal rights for other um, sorts of things. So that's on the agenda. So, all right. Did you guys happen to listen to my rant about democracy and at all or maybe not? So that's all right. I'm about half an hour into it. Oh, there you go. Okay. It wasn't too long. So essentially what I was saying was that when you have to, when you're looking at the success or failure of different countries, you just have to look at whether the USA treats them as a friend or a foe. And it didn't really matter whether they were a democracy or not. It was whether the current arrangements were favourable in the, in the self-interest of America or not. And if you got in the road of America, you're in trouble. That was essentially uh, save yourself listening to it, Shay. There you have it in a nutshell. <laughs> and I don't know. It's a little bit like if you're holding a hammer. Everything you see is a nail, and so since doing that little rant, I've I've come across a number of different things, and one of them was a little segment by an economist called Michael Hudson. So I'm just going to play that clip for you. So let me just find that, and I'll play this clip by Michael Hudson. Is uh, going to end America's ability. Uh, to control other countries. So yes, uh, the CIA's job is to promote what is America's means of financial leverage, as we're seeing now over Argentina, which is now running into trouble again. And the pro-US Argentinian government looked like it was going to lose the election. The IMF lent an enormous amount of new money to Argentina so that all of the wealthy Argentinians and the American companies there could move their uh, money out of Argentine currency into the dollar. And then after the left wing took over, the IMF let Argentina drop and foreign speculators moved against Argentina. And so the United States can say, you know, whether your country has an oligarchy or a democracy, if you have a democracy, we're going to crush you. If we support oligarchy, we said, and that essentially, I think, is uh, Biden is have, having the summit between next week between uh, uh, democracy and authoritarians. He said, look, America's backing autocracy. We're the autocracy. Our enemy are democratic countries that actually follow uh, what voters do. Okay, and so that's Michael Hudson, and uh, I've read different things by him, which are quite interesting when it comes to currency and the US dollar. And I just happened to come across another one. And so what you're going to hear from here is a guy, John Mearsheimer, and he's actually speaking at an event held by the Center for Independent Studies, which is a right-wing think tank. So for people who... What's that? I said, Sue's RT. Yes, yes, RT. That would have been Russia Today was Michael Hudson. Yes. So from the left, you've got that view, and I'm about to give you from the right, well... You know, Centre for Independent Studies, you can't get much more right-wing than that, can you? Except maybe the Institute of Public Affairs. So so John Mearsheimer is going to be speaking next. He's an American political scientist and international relations scholar 
who belongs to the Realist School of Thought. He's the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago. If you've heard of the University of Chicago Economic Centre, you'll know we've got a right-wing centre there, um, speaking at the right-wing think tank Centre for Independent Studies. And he's known for his uh, developing a theory of offensive realism, which describes the interaction between great powers as being primarily driven by the rational desire to achieve regional hegemony in an anarchic international system. So he was a... I've got it in the show notes there. So this is what this guy was saying while addressing the right-wing think tank, and he is from the University of Chicago Economics School. So let me find him here. Now, the question is, what does this all mean for Australia? You're in a quandary for sure. Everybody knows, everybody knows what the quandary is. Security-wise, you really want to go with us. It makes just a lot more sense, right? And you understand that security is more important than prosperity? Because if you don't survive, you're not going to prosper. Survival is of the utmost importance because you can't pursue any other goals if you don't survive. Right. So security's got to be number one. So you'll sacrifice prosperity for security. Right. That's what will happen. That's why you'll be with us. Now, some people say there's an alternative. You can go with China. Right. You have a choice here. You can go with China rather than the United States. There's two things I'll say about that. Number one, if you go with China, you want to understand you are our enemy you are then deciding to become an enemy of the United States. Because we're, again, we're talking about an intense security competition. You're either with us or against us. And if you're trading extensively with China and you're friendly with China, you're undermining the United States in this security competition. You're feeding the beast from our perspective. And that is not going to make us happy. And when we are not happy, you do not want to underestimate how nasty we can be. Just ask Fidel Castro. Nervous laughter from the crowd there. But um, uh, just quoting Caitlin Johnston, she said, so there you have it. Australia is not aligned with the US to protect itself from China. Australia is aligned with the US to protect itself from the US. Yeah. So anyway, uh, a left-wing and a right-wing view sort of in alignment with what I was saying in my rant last week. And essential... Lord Don says, the rant was very rantacular. <laughs> what does that mean, essential <laughs> Lord Don? Okay. And also as part of that rant or spiel, I was talking about neoliberalism. And some people really don't understand or have never heard of the term neoliberalism. And George Monbiot wrote a piece which was, we're like the Russians who have never heard of communism. So... Imagine if the people of the Soviet Union had never heard of communism. The ideology that dominates our lives has, for the most of us, no name. Mention it in conversation and you'll be rewarded with a shrug. Even if your listeners, even if your listeners have heard the term before, they will struggle to define it. Neoliberalism. Do you know what it is? And in a nutshell, it's a sort of free market deregulation, pro-globalisation, reduced government spending, sell-off government assets, promoted by Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman and the Montepelleron Society. That's, in a nutshell, neoliberalism, which was... And Maggie and Reagan. Yes, promoted by Reagan and Maggie. And essentially, that's been accepted as, as the dominant theory of how economics 
works and should work in the world today. And lots of people just don't know that. But it sort of has a way of insidiously sort of seeping into our culture where it's accepted those sort of principles and and we don't even see it. And there was an article here from Independent Australia which talked about journalists have the power to frame reality for audiences because they set the standards for what is considered good, bad, normal or controversial. So we all know what framing is, 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 is where you ask a question or you make an initial statement in such a way that you sort of set it up to be in a, in a certain direction from the very beginning. So in this article it says, you know, journalists have the power to, to frame things and, and gave a really interesting example, I thought, and I'm going to play it now. It's, it only goes for 30 seconds and it was a recent interview between Lee Sales on the 7.30 report who was about to interview the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. So let me just find this one and here we go. Frydenberg joins me now from Canberra. Thank you for being with us, Treasurer. Nice to be with you, Lee. Is your March 29th budget next year going to be about starting to recover the nation's balance sheet and pay down debt, or are you going to be unable to resist taking the nation even further into debt because you'll want to splash cash around because you're heading into an election? Well, the So this article gives that as a, a really interesting um, example of framing because the writer says there's nothing neutral about this question. It presents without question the ideologically loaded idea that government debt is bad for the economy and that the government's spending is politically problematic rather than desirable. It doesn't matter what Frydenberg responded because the question itself presents a biased view of the world. It presents a neoliberal assumption and thus is not balanced, but instead privileges conservative free market ideology ahead of competing perspectives. For example, it, it elides over the opposing perspective of Keynesian economic theory, which argues that government spending is good for the economy because it stimulates growth, particularly in tough times. So the way this writer says, the question set a standard for the respondent in the same way that when I ask my husband if he has put the bins out, I'm asking because I want him to put the bins out, not because I'm leading him to say, yes, I have. <laughs> At the end of the day, the audience was served up a biased representation of reality. And this is subtle she goes on, she could have framed the question like this. Can you please explain to the audience how you plan to manage the economy to ensure there is enough demand to stimulate economic growth and to make sure there is a job available for everyone who wants one? And the writer would have been interested to hear the Treasurer's response. So I thought that was all very good. I think... Yeah, but they're all about jobs and growth. Yes, but... In which case, why not ask it in that fashion? But Lee Sales definitely framed it as debt's bad, you need to pay this down. If you're not doing that, then you're obviously pandering to something else. So it was a setup. And yeah, I myself mightn't have spotted it, I don't think, if I was just watching it. But this writer's gone. Oh, there you go. Classic biased question. And I think the writer is correct. So, so yeah, I thought that was interesting. Right. That's enough of ongoing about my rant. Finish on that now. Julian Assange. John was asking, sorry? If John was asking if you could define neoliberal. Well, I think we did just earlier. Like neoliberal theory is that you must allow free markets 
you cannot regulate them or you should not regulate them. There should be no tariffs. Globalisation must be allowed, so multinational countries must be allowed to operate. Government spending on social services has to be reduced. If the government owns assets like water and electricity or other things, it should sell them off because governments should not be in the business of business, even if it's essential services. You know, that's, that's what neoliberalism is about, is, is a total reduction in the government to virtually nothing except defence and as few police as necessary. Preferably you should hire your own security guards. You know, that's, that's neoliberalism, I think, unless somebody wants to add to it, anything I've missed there. But that's, that's it in a nutshell, I think, a die straight. Unless the question was why new liberalism as opposed to old liberalism, what is the... I don't know how it got the actual terminology neoliberalism, but they don't like to use it because it's seen as being a little bit evil. So you won't find people openly saying, I'm a neoliberal. They'll oh, tend okay. to say... The word neo as in neo-Nazi or neo-nationalism. Maybe. It's definitely got a negative connotation, they would prefer but to it's, say. It's, it's, it's revisionist, isn't it? Uh, it's taking the original concept and almost turning it on its head. Yeah. I don't know. Next time I might look up the origins of, of the term neoliberalism, how it sort of came together. I did I do recall seeing it somewhere, but I can't remember what the details were. So oh essential dark essential Lord Don says and rantac rantacular means it was a spectacular rant. Yes, I just made that word up. <laughs> Thank you, essential Lord Don. Okay. Julian Assange, there was an appeal where the US argument got up. And now there's a further appeal. And so he's still in that terrible prison doing hard time there, waiting for this appeal process to go through. Did you see who's uh, Barnaby Joyce's comments at all about Julian Assange? Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, he's, um, a few years ago out in front of Parliament House and now he's locked up in a hotel saying it again. Basically, free Assange. I don't like the guy, but... yeah. This is the thing. So our Deputy Prime Minister is saying it's not right. Assange shouldn't be held there. It should be, you know, for all the reasons the left are saying it. Of course, he says it because he comes from a, a libertarian approach, I think, and also a sovereignty approach. So I think he's genuine, very genuine in it. And this is the part I don't get. The guy's the Deputy Prime Minister. Like, <laughs> Well, that's what, I, that's what I was going to say is the approach, he's approached this issue the way he's approached everything else. Like he, he, didn't, he didn't actually, didn't occur to him how absolutely stupid he looked when he came out saying, oh, yeah, but who's got a plan? Who's got a detailed plan about climate change? And everyone's going, you're the Deputy Prime Minister. Maybe yeah. right one. Yeah, he seems so, to like, think. He seems to think. It's like. I don't know what to do about it. I think should, something should be done, but I don't know what to do about yeah, it. Yeah, he thinks he's in opposition, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> he's, he's the deputy prime minister, and he can't wrangle away <laughs> to, to get this done with Julian Assange being, you know. Yeah, I just. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I just find that I'd never see anything where somebody says, "Well, hang on, you're the deputy PM," like. Do something about it. You you are a powerful man. You should be able to move this issue in your direction. Is he though? Yeah. 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 I I think at the moment it's kind of 
Just keep your dick in the pants and keep out of the. <laughs> you know, you're the kind of guy people just avoid in meetings. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's also he's also deputy chair of the powerful National Security Committee of Cabinet, which considers the major foreign policy and national security issues for the federal government. He's the deputy chair. Anyway, according to this article from the Sydney Morning Herald, asked for a response to Mr Joyce's comments, a government spokesman said its position was unchanged. Quote, Australia will continue to respect UK legal processes, noting that these are ongoing proceedings, the spokesman said. I just don't get this. This, this journalist, how you could write this, that... The deputy PM says one thing and they ask the government for a response. He and he government. is the government. And they say an unnamed government spokesman said, well, we're just going to let the UK legal process run. What sort of journalism is this? I'm just I'm bemused by the whole thing and I'm just appalled by the whole thing. And, and, and the thing I don't get, like, I, so I can fully understand a... Uh, sort of a libertarian type of guy like Barnaby Joyce being a supporter of Julian Assange. You know, these guys are supposed to be free speech. That's one of their mantras. And say whatever you like and whether you offend somebody or not doesn't really matter. And we are a sovereign nation. They're big on free speech and sovereignty. Like it makes sense that Barnaby Joyce is kind of in support of this. The only reason you wouldn't be is that you are so much a lapdog of the US that you will just do whatever they say, no matter how much that compromises your own personal principles, just to keep them happy. So that that's the only so, sort of hang on. Are you yeah. saying Scotty has principles? Yeah, well, well, you're you're well, he does. Like religion, promoting oh, okay. religion would be one of them. So so yeah. So I still get look. I still get emails from Spiked and The Spectator, even though I unsubscribe all the time, but they're still coming through. I still haven't seen anything in those magazines that supports or says anything about Julian Assange. So, so much for freedom from the freedom of speech-loving publications of Spiked and The Spectator. And Caitlin Johnston. Caitlin Johnston is an interesting one. Dear listener, if you're looking for stuff for independent blogs and writers and thinkers outside of mainstream media... And we've mentioned before, Crikey is very good. John Menadue's blog is very good. Previously, I've liked Kenan Malik. He's still good. A lady called Caitlin Johnston. Follow her on Twitter or follow her on Substack. She's got lots of good things to say. And she just says, in relation to Assange, what's the difference between how the US deals with journalists it hates and how Saudi Arabia deals with journalists it hates? And the answer is speed. And that's... Uh, a pretty fair summation of it. So, so yeah, that's Julian Assange. I'll move on to now. Last week I had my rant. The week before that, I think we were talking about Morrison and ICAC and how appalling it was that he came out and called ICAC a kangaroo court. And I think we all agreed, isn't that terrible? What's the world coming to? And virtually... The next day, a central report came out with a uh, survey to that and I put it on the Facebook page. And the survey question was, the Prime Minister has described the New South Wales ICAC as a kangaroo court and suggested that 
Premier Gladys Berejiklian was hounded out of office. To what extent do you agree or disagree with the Prime Minister? And in terms of disagree or strongly disagree, the total was only 36 neither agreed nor disagreed, and 34% either agreed or strongly agreed. So only 31% of the people who were surveyed could say, I disagree with Scott Morrison calling New South Wales ICAC a kangaroo court. I'm depressed. Is anyone else equally as depressed? (laughs) Yeah. It just goes to show it's all about who your party preference is and never mind the rest. Yeah. Yep. That's. Could it possibly be Clayster? Could it be what? They'd rather rather a corrupt Premier than Dominic Perrottet. No, it wasn't asking what's your preference. It was just saying he's called it a kangaroo court, says she was handed out. Do you agree or disagree? I think it's a pretty well-worded question to get the proper response even now they're still banging on about how great she was yes yeah yeah so anyway it seems that the efforts to put her in as a candidate in the next election have have fallen by the wayside so maybe he did that as a distraction and just ran it up the flagpole see how it flies oops got a bit of heat on that i'll try something else it could have been as simple as that. So It's great to see that Gladys is corrupt enough to be in federal politics. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I think Labor is making noises about if they get into power, they will be creating an ICAC and they'll be asking it to look at, in particular, the rortings that have been going on, allegedly, with pork barrelling of, of electorates by this government. So... That would be good if that happens. So, is it allegedly or is it factual? Well, you're right. I mean, it's open, isn't it? In fact, now I wonder if I've got this Scott Morrison one. I don't know if I've got him here, but there was an incident where the Prime Minister was being interviewed and what they were doing was there's been reports in the nine newspapers. I'll read this article, actually. Analysis found that coalition-held seats got nearly four times as much grant funding as ones. The Prime Minister has shrugged off the controversy, claiming coalition seats received far more money than nearby Labor seats simply because they have, quote, uh, a good local member. So this was a defence rejected by a Labor MP who claims that every single one of her funding proposals has been rejected by the government at the last budget despite months of work. In contrast, Peter Dutton's neighbouring seat got more than 46 times as much government funding. Now, this seems to be funding which is inherently discretionary. So it seems to be funding that doesn't have the same process that Gladys Berejiklian's fallen foul of. That's what it seems to me. So... But it's just a blatant use of that discretion to favour your own seats that you hold so that your own politicians can look marvellous because of the things that you buy for them. So uh, reports in the nine newspapers analysed the allocation of 19,000 federal grants in the past three years for which the government had discretionary power to allocate. Coalition electorates were given $1.9 billion Labor seats got less than 530 million and 
when he was asked about it, Morrison was said, Dixon must have a very good local member, and he just sort of laughed it off and no, moved no, on. No, he's, he's, he's worried that the potato is coming for him. Right. And he's trying to buy him off. Well, no. You know, he's, the potatoes, no, they're just giving money left, right and centre to every electorate that they have in the hope that, that they can hold on to that electorate by saying but, what but, they've got. But Dustin, Dustin is inching closer to leader of the Liberals. That's what the talk seems to be. Yeah. But that's what the talk seems to be. But, I, well, it was in Dutton's interest that he got so much money. So if Morrison was doing something, he might have done something to reduce the amount of funding that Dick's, that, that DC know, got. Or is it just, just a sop to him to try and keep him sweet? No, well, that's not going to work, is it? Dutton's not going to say, oh, I won't challenge you for leader because you gave lots of money to my electorate. <laughs> not going to do that. Uh, okay. What about you, Jack? Do you feel like you live in a $40 million seat? No, I... Because you're in Dixon, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm forever shocked that they keep returning him, even after he ran off to the Gold Coast. Because <laughs> mm. he stood for pre-selection in the Gold Coast and they then took him back when he didn't get selected. Mm. Mm. Anyway, the, the neighbouring electorate, not one of the 30 proposals was funded. So she was pretty upset when it was suggested that she wasn't uh, a good member. She just said, I just got knocked back 30 times. So, right. Now, key statistics. Uh, the largest grant was $90 million to the Salvation Army for drought payments to households. What the hell are we doing giving $90 million to the Salvation Army so that they can then give money to drought-affected households? What is going on? Well, they're better placed to determine who is worthy or not. Yes. Uh, and obviously who is worthy is based on how religious they are. Yeah. And whether they're the right sort of religious. Yeah. The largest grant in an electorate, $35 million in Dixon. Oh, let's see. So the Salvation Army got $90 million. St Vincent de Paul got $72 million to give $3,000 apiece to struggling households in drought-stricken regions. So oh, we've, we've spread it around. You know, Not only have we given it to the Salvation Army to give to drought households, we've given $72 million to St Vincent de Paul and said, here, you guys are clearly better at this than we are. Can you hand out this money for us? Goodness sake. For Christmas, I got a subscription to The Monthly, yep. which is the yeah newspaper magazine connected to the 7am podcast. I just had a glance at it then and Mel Pearson's done an interesting article on how that sort of funding and almost sourcing how charity is another impact on liberalism. So you just cut out a bit then, Shay. Are you still with us? You, you've frozen. Yeah. Can you just say that again? Noel Pearson said what? Noel Pearson posited or put forward that that's another impact of neoliberalism. So we're almost adding our services to charities and then the charities need the money. So it's just this almost yep. cycle of... Yep, because we don't have uh, a government department that's got people exactly. that can yes. actually hand out stuff. And we've got a government department that's quite good at taking money off people and could quite possibly do the reverse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
the suggestion. So I think it was for UBI. The suggestion was the tax department would do it. Yes. Like the drought-affected farmers, sh- surely you're right. Surely the tax department could be best placed to say, mm-hmm. with with some other data about where droughts have been in the country. Are you in this area? Has your income dropped significantly? Okay, we can give you this amount of money rather than the Salvation Army walking around beating their tambourines as they decide whether to hand out money or not. Bronman says, hello, Bronman, our seat, which is the second most marginal seat in Australia, only got about $4 million. Obviously, our Liberal member isn't a very good member. Okay, still on that uh, topic, of the top 20 grants... Five went to professional football clubs, four for swimming pools, four went to private manufacturing businesses, an ammunition factory, a brewery, a fruit processing plant and a dairy cooperative. Seriously? An ammunition factory? And one went to a property developer to build a marina in Townsville. Well, there we go. Well, the ammunition factory, possibly because that increases our ability in time of war. Indeed. To... Create our own ammunition. Yeah. In lieu of the submarines. Yeah. Well, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, even then they wouldn't give it to an ammunition factory that was in a Labor electorate. I can tell you that now. No, obviously not. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. I presume the grants are loans. No. These are grants. Like, yeah. A grant is a grant. No, it's just money just doled out. These people who are, yeah. Good luck to you. Go spend it. Yeah. I've always wondered about these grants to government schools. Sorry, not um, the private schools. So, yeah, here's $5 million to build whatever facility. Yes. And then the school goes bust. Who gets the money? Do schools go bust? It's too good. It's too good. How could you? Yeah. How could you? That's right. How could you go bust? But if they did, if they decided to wind up, who gets to keep the asset? It's a, it's a private school with the government paying all that money. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, look, exactly. all these entities are owned by different things, aren't they? So it would be an operating entity and then a, and a land-holding entity and it's the operating entity that goes bust, but, but, but the land-holding usually, entity usually, keeps going. Yeah, I was going to say usually it's the church. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's quite a hypothetical where a school goes bust. Yeah. I think they oh, just take the just, grant. You know, yeah. The taxpayers are effectively giving money to the churches, though. Yes. Yeah. Improving the value of their land. Indeed. And ammunition factories and property yes. developers to build marinas. Right. You'd have to build the marina, surely. You'd have to send oh. them a photo or something of said marina. Yeah. But, you know, if somebody's going to give you the money, it makes it easy. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. They might even go a step further and not even build the thing and just put the money in their pocket. Who knows? I, I'm, sh- I'm sure that the MPs will get discounted rates for boring. Anyway, we've talked about the calibre of candidates in our federal parliament and the Liberal Party is without confirmed candidates in Hughes, Gilmore, Benelong, Dobell, Macquarie, Parramatta, Greenway and Eden, Monaro. And in Dobell on the New South Wales central coast, Dye Straits, is that your territory? Morrison is backing Pentecostal preacher Jemima Gleeson. <laughs> in what multiple state officials described as a captain's pick that continues to deadlock the negotiations. So fear not, Ms Gleeson is a worship leader 
with the Hope Unlimited Church. And she is Mr. Morrison's preference over cardiologist Michael Fennelly, who's got the backing of moderate and conservative leaders. So, so yeah, Scott Morrison is trying to work in some of his favourite picks. And it said here, a federal source said Mr. Morrison is not seeking a captain's pick in Dobell, and the Prime Minister has never spoken to Miss Gleeson. Well, he doesn't have to, knowing that she's a worship leader with the Hope Unlimited Church. That's him. <laughs> I've never met Miss Gleeson, but I can tell you a lot about Miss Gleeson already. I'd have to meet her. She's a Pentecostal preacher called Jemima Gleeson and a worship leader. Funnily enough, I've got a pretty good idea. There we go. Yep. Okay, now, there was an interesting interview with this guy in the UK Parliament, was the former Speaker, Burkow, Burko, and if you've ever seen sort of question time in UK Parliament, you would have seen this guy. He's no longer in the Parliament, I don't think, as the Speaker, but I've got what he had to say. So he's talking about Boris Johnson and what you've got to, when you're listening to him talk about Boris Johnson, ask yourself, could this be said about Scott Morrison? Here we go. Person who is in charge of the ship is regarded as a serial dissembler, as an habitual liar, as somebody who has made his career through ducking and dodging and diving and dissembling and deceiving people. That's the difference, and that is why it is so incredibly serious and enormously damaging. I'm sorry to say it, but I've known 12 prime ministers in my lifetime, and by a country mile, Boris Johnson is the worst. His natural instinct is not to be open, not to be transparent, not to be accountable, but narcissistically to think, what suits me? How can I extricate myself from this awkward situation? By what means can I arrogate blame somewhere else? Apply that to a number of people. Just insert name there. So it seems to be current right-wing politics. Yes. In English-speaking states. Yes. That's what we've been lumped with. So, so that was him. Now, I was talking to my next-door neighbour, and he, you know, is a traditional liberal voter, and we have great discussions. And we're discussing the pros and cons of Morrison and Albanese. And he said, "Oh, Albanese, oh, he's just an old lefty. You know, these, these guys don't change." And I, I said to him, "Name me one policy. What's the most left-wing policy?" that Albanese has that Scott Morrison does not also support. And this guy's quite well read, very smart. Like, And he couldn't answer. He said, I have to get back to you. Like this is the thing. People get impressions about people. And, and when they give you an argument like that, it's, it's really sometimes when people fire hose you with a bunch of things, say to them, What's the best one? Like you've just said a thousand things in one sentence. What's your strongest, best argument for something? And if I deal with that, then, you know, the rest of it falls away. But often if people are having a bit of a rant about something, if you really put it on them and say, name one policy, because let's face it, every time that Liberal comes out with some statement at the moment, or in the last three years, Labor just agrees wholeheartedly with whatever it is. 
They are so determined to be a small target that I just can't just can't think of anything that they have stood up for. And, and I was genuinely curious, like just name one thing that you think is left-wing that Albanese stands for, and I couldn't name it. So if you're having arguments with people or discussions, then try that tactic. I would hope workers' rights, but... Yeah, but it's not a specific policy, is it? You know, you can't... No. You can't think of a particular thing, so... so and just in terms of the other arguments, if you're having with people about, you know, if you're not arguing over COVID and you've moved on to, on to just politics in general <laughs> over Christmas with your favourite relatives and you've had a few too many drinks and, <laughs> and your right-wing uncle is just going off about that high-taxing Labor government, then... Introduce them to this concept. So the government has sought to paint the opposition as the party of high taxes. But according to Labor, it is the coalition whose track record on taxes falls short. Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers tweeted, Whenever Treasurer Josh Frydenberg bangs on about tax, remember that the two highest taxing governments of the last 30 years have both been Liberal national governments, including his. And the question is, is that correct, that the two highest taxing governments in the last 30 years have been Liberal national governments, including the current Define one? Define highest taxing. We'll get to that. Is he correct? And in this article from the ABC, they had a little fact-checking sort of thing that they did. And their response was, the claim is a fair call. Tax revenue as a share of the economy was highest under Prime Minister John Howard. Next was the current coalition government, elected in 2013. Then the Hawke-Keating government and then Rudd and Gillard. So, but direct comparisons are complicated. So the introduction of the Federal Goods and Services Tax, the GST in 2000, that distorts things a bit because the federal government said we'll collect, we'll collect GST in return for state governments not collecting a bunch of other taxes, sales taxes, for example. So, so the GST sort of artificially bumped up what the federal government got prior to the GST years. Also, now, tax figures are subject to factors beyond the control of governments, including resource prices, for example. So, so yeah, in assessing it, they've, they've looked at the Australian federal government's tax take as a share of GDP. That's how they've ranked the governments. Total tax received as a share of gross domestic product. That way you can deal with economies that are getting larger over time. So the problem with that measurement is that in, for example, the Howard Costello years, there was a mining boom where resource prices skyrocketed and as a result, the government's tax take on those resources skyrocketed. So one of the reasons why Howard and Costello's government was the highest taxing government wasn't because they actually raised tax percentages, but it's just that the resource boom was so big that they collected all of these tax money from resource companies and they took a greater tax take. So... 
So when you are having your argument, you have to concede, okay, the GST affected things, introducing it increased the federal government's tax take. And there are things beyond the government's control that affect its tax take, like the price of resources. But on the other hand, but that's why, you know, when you talk about, well, was a government high taxing or not, or, you know, there are things beyond their control. But if you just want to go with the actual statement of a high taxing government, the tax collected as a percentage of GDP, Howard and Costello were the highest. The current government started in 2013 as second, then it's Hawke Keating, and then it's Rudd Gillard. So do you have any idea that would be the case, Shay? No, but I'm, I'm glad. Right. So, yeah. So I'm not even glad about it because to some extent you could argue, well, taxes should be higher. Like there's not enough tax. Like you might as a lefty argue that, for example. But I'm curious where the burden of that tax is lying. C- correct. It's just a total tax collected. So it's corporations, I, resources. I suspect that yep. during uh, coalition governments that falls more proportionately on the middle and lower classes. Than during Labor governments, yes. Although, again, when you look at Howard and Costello years, as as Paul Keating said about Costello, he was kissed on the ass by a rainbow. Like the just the money was flowing in from the resources that personal income tax rates could be cut because of that resource boom. That so everybody got you know middle and lower classes got tax breaks. The problem was it's the higher income levels also got tax breaks and 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 those breaks have been kept in place even when the resource boom stopped and we arguably needed more money for other things. So so yeah, it's it's complicated, but it's also a fun thing to do if you want to poke fun at a sort of your right wing uncle who talks about the high taxing Labor governments, throw that one around the kitchen at the dinner table when the turkey served. And, uh, and just say, hey, fun fact, everybody, who do you reckon was the highest yeah. taxing government in the last 30 it years? Was, it was fact-checked by the left-leaning APC, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, it's fake news. Yeah. But um, <laughs> the, it's a fact that you can actually deal oh, yeah. with. It's total tax collected, GDP. It's a pretty – it's one to me- you can actually measure. So, so, yeah, I like that one. All right. Now, did you guys see Samantha Kerr, the soccer player, at all? With her hip and shoulder, you probably haven't seen it. Well, uh, due to my nifty clips that I've got here, I can show it to you. So she's one of our. Well, she is our best female soccer player, and and this was her in a match where a pitch invader came onto the field. So check this one out. She's playing a soccer match. Pitch invader comes on. Just a lout, obviously. He's saying, get off. And he's got his phone out. He's taking a selfie of himself. He's taking his time getting off. And Samantha Kerr has just come in from the side with a hip and shoulder and knocked him onto his backside. You heard the reaction there. 
This is interesting, Shay, because Sam Kerr's knocking, this is according to an article from Michael Bradley and Crikey, Sam Kerr's knocking down male entitlement raises ethical questions but feels so right. Sam Kerr, soccer team captain, executed a perfect hip and shoulder drop on a pitch invader, putting him on his ass and earning a standing ovation from the crowd. She also got a yellow card, by the way, for that, presumably for ungentlemanly. The writer says, I imagine many people shared my immediate reaction. Give her a medal. Make her Australian of the Year. A good old-fashioned don't argue. Could anything be, according to our cherished self-image, more Australian? But violence is bad always. What if she'd been a bloke and a pitch invader a woman? All hell would be breaking loose right now. These points are not illegitimate, nor is it wrong per se to watch the video of Kerr delivering her coup de cra to the smirking fool and feel unalloyed joy. The standard ethical position on violence, whether retaliatory, righteous or not, is that it is unjustifiable except in either self-defence or defence of the defenceless. Otherwise, violence is reserved exclusively to the state, which defends us collectively. Once we begin allowing for exemptions or exceptions to the slippery slope, uh, the slippery slope runs all the way down to the gladiatorial equivalent of Love Island. Then, however, there are Nazis and the controversial, but in my view, well-justified argument that it is always okay to punch them. The basis for that principle is essentially, look what happens when you don't. The motivations and impacts of your average football pitch invader are a long way from genocidal totalitarianism, so it is difficult to find a general principle which supports Kerr's action. She wasn't in any personal danger, nor was anyone else. There was security, albeit less effective than her, and the only immediate downside risk was delay of the game. So I thoughts? Know someone who was, I know someone who was on the wrong end of one of those. Right. There was a Brisbane-Sydney footy match, I think, at the Gabba, and he rang and ran on during one of the, during the match, he was pissed and tackled one of the Sydney players who put him in his place. And he was then promptly arrested and charged. Right. Okay. So in that case, it was the pitch invader who tackled a player. And the player then retaliated by doing what? (laughs) By thumping him. (laughs) This was a mate of yours? A a former colleague. Right. Shay, any thoughts? He was was young, drunk and stupid. Right. And it was kind of a lesson learned. Right. Yeah, I sort of, I was interested in the sort of gender lens. So I had tried to have a poke around to see what stats of men running onto the field versus women running onto the field. I couldn't find anything, but there's certainly plenty of cases of women getting on fields as well. So I'm not sure that running onto a field is about male entitlement. Right. I think the reason that people love it, and even I've watched it 15 times, it's more like I kind of see it as a almost underdog sort of clap down where, yeah, she it's like YouTube is just full of these types of videos where someone gets put in their place. And I know that there's, yeah, real, I think putting a gender lens on it might be overanalyzing it. I'm trying to justify it because obviously you look at it and you just want to go, yep, that is the right, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think my justification is that, it wasn't actually a violent act. Like, mm. Was he the, seriously hurt? Uh, what was that? Was he seriously hurt? No, he dusted himself yeah. off and off he went. So, I mean, there's a risk that he was, you know, had an eggshell skull and could have died or something. But, I mean, 
at the end of the day, it just wasn't a violent act, I think. I think calling that a violent act is overstating it. And essentially, it, it was like a parent smacking a two-year-old who's just having a tantrum, in a sense. It don't see it as a violent act. So I think that's where I can justify it and saying, good on you. Whereas if a big, beefy, 120-gram footballer shoulder-charged or hip-charged a female, 70 kilos, you know, I think, I think then the risk that you could have actually broken something would be much higher and general risk of, you could just see it as but, genuinely more violent. But, but if, if they picked them up and just carried them off the pitch yeah. as if they were a, a naughty child, mm-hmm. would you object to that? If the security did. No, no, no. If the player. Oh. So if, 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 if some. Oh, if a beefy footballer picked up a, a 70 year old um, female well, and carried her off the invader. field, a pitch invader. Yeah. No, I wouldn't have a problem with that because that's what it, sometimes security guards have to physically do. So just be, you know, you'd recommend against it because you might get injured doing it. Like Terry Alderman was a cricketer in Australia who tackled a pitch invader in a cricket match and he busted his shoulder and was out of action for a long time and affected his bowling, I think, almost for the rest of his career. Like it was quite a significant injury for him because he'd tackled the guy. So to a player you'd say don't do it because tackling somebody might hurt yourself. I'm sort of contradicting myself there because if you admit that, then maybe her giving a hip and shoulder might have injured that guy. (laughs) Anyway, I think the risk is so low that good honour. Think Shay, any thoughts for the sisterhood? Yeah, was that okay for that to happen? Yeah, I think the same thing about the context. Like, mm. as part of my research on women running on fields, they're mainly streaking. Yes. So. <laughs> Another reason why a male footballer shouldn't touch them. <laughs> <laughs> but the reaction's quite different from the crowd as well, and they seem to be fairly compliant when security sort of surrounds them. Yes. <laughs> Puts a blanket on them. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. The, punch, the punching Nazis, on the other hand, I do have a problem with. Yes, I do as well. Yeah. Because the definition of Nazi seems to be very loose and now seems to be anybody I disagree with. Yeah. And... I don't know. What's a punching Nazi? Oh, that is that if somebody was at a rally or something and there was somebody stood up and made all these sort of pro-Nazi comments, it would be there, okay there to punch a, them. You know, if somebody was an was obvious a, pro-Nazi. There was, there was a neo-Nazi leader mm. in America who was being interviewed on TV and somebody walked up in the street and punched him in the face. Yeah. And there was a meme that went around on that saying it's always okay to punch a Nazi. Yeah. But then I've heard the term Nazi banded around in arguments against everybody and anybody. So by the, as soon as you say it's okay to punch a Nazi, you're basically saying it's okay to punch anyone I disagree with. Yes. Yeah. So, and, you know, there's a difference between punching somebody in the face and her giving this guy a hip and shoulder where he lands on the ground. The punch is definitely violent. The other one, not so much. The other thing that happened once a few years ago was the egg boy Remember there was a politician and Egg Boy came along and cracked an egg over his head and I think it might have been Stuart Robert or somebody like that and lots of people were like, good on Egg Boy, like that was okay but 
Now, that wasn't something that was going to harm him, but what's that? It was just a yoke. Said it yeah. was all he, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jay. But you know that was unacceptable because the guy was in a mess then, covered in an egg. Like he couldn't just dust himself up and keep going. And he hadn't invaded a pitch and asked for trouble. Like he was just conducting a press conference at the time. So quite different, in, that, in my opinion. Right. And you could argue was similar. The the yeah, lots of people said good on Egg Boy. He was a bit of a hero to people. Certainly doesn't seem to be roundly condemned. Yeah. Wasn't, so. wasn't the politician sort of Pauline Hanson-esque, though? Yes. So everyone hated the politician and so they felt like a bit like a Nazi. You could throw an egg at this person, but at the time we sort of said, well, no, that's not on. But, yeah, so they were just conducting their it affairs. It was Fraser Ranning. Thank you, Fraser Ranning. Thank you, Julia. You got egged. Yep. So, yeah, he hadn't invaded a pitch and done anything wrong. He was just minding his own business, sprouting his usual nonsense. And, yeah, the people who were in favour of Egg Boy and thought it was a good thing really needed to think harder about, again, what if it was a female politician who'd and some big burly guy had crushed an egg on her head? Maybe they mightn't have thought the same thing. So, yeah. All right, that's Sam Kerr. That's an interesting conundrum. Oh, here's a depressing one for you. I think I've got this one on. I've gone to town on video clips. Here's one for you. It's got sort of strange background to it. So what you saw there was about... a skinned cat at the front. Yeah. What you saw there was about eight people on a basketball... I know, maybe it's an ice hockey arena and they're on carpet and there's all this money and they are grabbing, obviously, thousands of notes. They're stuffing them into their shirts and it's, you know, it's obviously some sort of competition. Grab as much money as you can and... Whatever you can grab, you can keep. But the twist in the tale of this one, dear listener, in this dash for cash, they were actually teachers on their knees fighting for $1 bills that they could use in a classroom for supplies while spectators watch and cheer. Oh, what's, what's a marathon man? They'd have a similar scene in Marathon Man, did they, with Dustin Hoffman? Oh, Steve, no, 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 Stephen King. It was... One of the Stephen King films where basically mm. it was just anything for entertainment and they were murdering each other. Right. It, was, it was Gladiator. It was fight to the death. Okay. But it was the fact that American entertainment is getting to the point where basically we're going to have people killing each other for money yeah. just for entertainment. Sort of squid game but actually televised sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever see Marathon Man, Shay? No. Don't go before going to a dentist. <laughs> There's a... This- <laughs> There's a scene where he gets tortured by a dentist. It's horrendous. It's horrendous. You'll just squirm. It's awful. Anyway, it's worth seeing. I recommend it. So, yeah, that was a picture, dear listener, of about eight different teachers on their hands and knees scrambling around, grabbing dollar bills, stuffing them into their shirts so that they could use it for classroom supplies while the audience watched and cheered. Running man, Mel J says. Joe, there we go. All right, might remember our stamps issue with the Satanic Temple where we created a Satanic stamp. Australia Post knocked us back and said we couldn't have it even though they agreed that we could have a Noosa Church of Christ stamp. We just couldn't have a Noosa Temple of Satan stamp. And beginning the end, we decided not to pursue it at this stage because we just didn't have the energy. But next year we might order some stamps and gird our loins and run with it, see what happens. But in America, 
they have a similar thing, customised stamps. And there was an artist who won a legal battle with the post office. So the artist wanted to print a stamp that had some sort of political message on it. It had a painting that featured the words, democracy is not for sale. And it showed Uncle Sam being strangled by a snake bearing the name of Citizens United. So a reference to a Supreme Court ruling that revoked limits on political donations from corporations. And there we go. He took it to court and the court found it in his favour. So, so that was an American customised stamp free speech issue with some similarities to what we were trying to do with the New Temple of Satan. So there we go. Right, dear listener, this could be the last podcast for the year, I suspect. And look, I don't mention it enough. I should because then maybe more people would sign up and do it. But we have patrons out there who have gone to the website, ironfistvelvetglove.com.au. Probably the first time I've mentioned that in all year. I really need to do a bit more self-promotion on these things. So we have a website. You can go there. You can find all our old episodes and you can find the IFVG Secular Index, whereas you can look up any federal politician and find out what religion they are if it's publicly known and also a rating about their secularity. And you could leave a speak pipe message. If you are land and house bottom, you could click on that and leave a recorded message, which is possible. So... And the other thing you can do is you can click on the link and become a donor to the show. So I subscribe to a number of different publications. Let me just see if I've got this handy because I didn't have this ready, but I might be able to find it. So there's the hosting of the website. There's the media file that has to be hosted. There's this nifty restream thing that we're using that you can see the chat room and we can play these clips. There's a Descript software that cuts out the ums and ahs. There's subscriptions to The Guardian, Crikey, an RSS feeder, The Australian, I actually pay for, The Sydney Morning Herald, The Courier Mail, New York Times. Per episode, it's costing about 80 Australian dollars by the time you add up all those subscriptions. So there's some patrons who contribute one or two or five or ten dollars per episode. And if you'd like to become one, that would be great to help me pay for some of these expenses because, as you can see, they add up. So I'm going to call out the names of the people who have been supporters. Can you believe it? I think we've only lost a couple over the last 12 months, even though I never mention their names. They stay in. So thank you. I really appreciate it to the following patrons. And by the way, this was updated from Patreon this morning, and if I don't call your name out, it could be that you're – and you think you're a patron – It could be that your credit card was declined and your payments haven't been coming through. So if you think you're a patron on Patreon, and I don't mention your name, hop on there and update your credit card, please. So I'm going to start with the most recent patrons and then work our way to the ones who've been around the longest. So thank you to Cy, thank you to Warehouse Guy Tom, Rico, Greg P, Shannon, Liam Healy, Don Tuvi, Daniel Flanagan, Matt Dwyer, Sue Cripp, James, Branwyn, Wayne, David Hanby, Virgil, uh, Craig, Shane Ingram, Yam Yam Blue, Zambuck, David Copley, Graham Hannigan, yet another Pinker fan, John in Dire Straits, Donnie Darko, Camille, Tom Doolan, Paul Waper. Hello, Paul. Haven't heard from you. Are you back in Brisbane yet? And let's catch up. Alexander Allen, Clinton Riggs, Matthew. Craig S, Professor Dr. Dentist, Glenn Bell, Adam Priest, Murray Waper, Andy Dowling, Captain Doomsday, Peter Gillespie, Gavin S, Daniel Curtin, Liam McMahon, Dominic DeMassey, Maddock Mann. Hello, 
Bronwyn. Thanks, Bronwyn. You've been a patron since 2nd of June, 2018. Kane, Jimmy Spud is back. Jimmy's back. He was a patron. He disappeared. Now he's working as a, again. Tony Wall, Steve Shinners, Alison, are you in the chat room? Thank you, Alison. Been a patron since December 2017. Ayame, Wayno, Craig Gladsby, Janelle Louise, and the original, the one, the only, going all the way back to the 5th of February 2016, Sean. Thank you, Sean. And there are some people who support via, via, via PayPal rather than Patreon, and that is Mr. Anderson, Matt Mann, Mr. T., Paul Evans, Wayne Seaman, Anne Reid, Obrada Puscarica, Darren Giddens, and Watley, and Greg Clark, and Dave S from Cairns. Thank you. It is appreciated. There are some shows and some podcasts where they rattle through those names every week, and I think it sort of um, puts people off and they'd want to fast forward. So you are unsung heroes, and even though I don't mention you very often, thank you very much. And if you'd like to become a patron, hop on and and do that. That'd be good. So, all right. Okay, right. Oh, Mel J says, updating credit card, exclamation mark. <laughs> they were good. Okay, you hear about the smoking ban in New Zealand? Yeah. What I say, basically, they're going to pass a law, I think they have passed it, preventing Kiwis born from 2011 onward from ever buying tobacco. It'll become an offence to sell or supply tobacco products to anyone aged 14 or under when the legislation kicks in from 2025. And they're also going to weaken, weaken the nicotine content. So, you know, in 2050, they're going to say, you want to buy a cigarette? Um, sorry, you're younger than 39. We're not going to give you a pack of cigarettes. But your mate there who's 40 will let him buy it. Like that's how it's aimed at. Thoughts on whether this is a good idea or not? It's been suggested that this is the fairest way to ban smoking. Mm. It is to figure out a demographic that aren't yet smoking, that aren't yet hooked, and make it illegal from that demographic onwards. Jay, is it a law yeah, you would I'm... pass if you're... Yeah. yeah. I actually suggested this ages ago, and it was my son who found the article and said, look, Dad, they finally did what you suggested years ago. <laughs> It's going, yeah. to be, it's going to be a little bit tricky, a little bit tricky because tourists, like I suppose they could lose a lot of tourist trade. but it, Could uh, they? You just get your cigarettes duty-free. If you're going to get through more than a carton in a holiday. That's true. You could bring in your own cigarettes. That's yes. true. That answers that, I would imagine. New Zealand, probably not. Yeah. So they're going to say at the border... If you're just an 18-year-old and you've come in with some cigarettes, then they're just going to let you come in with them. Is, it, is that what you're saying? It's Because it's not going to be illegal to possess them. It's just going to be illegal to sell or buy them. Correct. There we go. That answers that. Okay, that solves that. The strange thing is, and they're going to uh, sort of weaken the nicotine content as well, and the strange thing is that it's not going to affect vaping. So they're still yeah. going to allow people to vape. Yeah, and the question is how vaping is very much aimed at a younger demographic, especially with all the flavours. Yeah. 
So I think... There was a... Um, sorry to interrupt. But there was a good interview by, I think, the man who has been putting forward this policy. He's the Professor of Public Health at the University of Auckland. And he did a very good interview where he said that it's recently been a study come out that says 25% of young people are something vaping. And that that research has been, it was very poorly designed and he wouldn't bank any sort of serious factual evidence from that study at all. And that primarily what they're seeing is that vaping is used as an aid to give up smoking. And they see it as less harmful than cigarette smoking. Very good. Didn't see that. That's good. Yeah. Professor John, I forget. Okay. But anyway, Professor of Public, so you could Google him. Okay. That makes, because it just didn't make sense. I didn't understand why they had let vaping out. So there you go. Ricky. Ricky in the chat room says, great idea, can we do it for religion? <laughs> <laughs> if only. Dire Straits says, trouble is prohibition, never works. I don't think it will work, sadly. It's going to make it difficult for people to get hold of it. It depends what, yeah. what you're looking for as a result, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Kind of statement to say it doesn't work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's the concern about the long-term health risks of vaping. And if it's used as a stopgap for cigarettes, it's probably not bad. But if the tobacco companies are using it as a revenue filler to make, to make up for the revenue lost from cigarettes, then that's a concern. I guess they can always watch it, see what happens. And if vaping sort of takes over as a substitute, then they could do something about it and just I ban that as that, well. Um, the supply of nicotine over here is now illegal to import because people were buying it from NZ. Right. You now need a doctor's script to get nicotine. So if you're vaping, it's nicotine-free. Ah, okay. Right. Didn't know that. There we go. Okay. Stuart in the chat room says, have a read of John Saffron's new book, Puff Piece. It looks at vaping v cigarettes and finds big tobacco has their hands all over it. Yeah. So I'm sure they do. Anyway, but then I'm sure uh, that medical professional had some valid reasons for it in New Zealand. So interesting to see where that ends up. I think crikey article, I've got a link here too. It's a while since I read it, was against it, saying that basically we've taxed people as much as we can. My dad was a smoker, but he quit cold turkey when packets of cigarettes reached a dollar a packet. He said, that's outrageous. I'm not paying that. And he stopped. At that point, I, I gave like, up when I was on a training course in Belgium and I ran out of English cigarettes. Right. And, and I couldn't smoke the Belgian ones. They were disgusting. There you go. You had taste. So I gave up. Right. Shay, were you a smoker at any point? Yeah, I gave them up. Yeah, just as the pandemic hit. Right. Yep. I thought, I'll try and try. And, <laughs> and relieves pressure on my lungs. <laughs> All right. How old were you when you started? 14. There we go. So a law like this presumably would have made it difficult for you to get hold of cigarettes unless you had older brothers and sisters or friends who could have supplied you, you say I that, guess. I started smoking at 10. Right. <laughs> and it definitely wasn't legal. Yeah. 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 I guess it just gets progressive. The point is it will just get progressively harder and harder. Okay, in the first few years... As a 14-year-old, it's easy for your 16-year-old mates to get cigarettes and to 
supply. But mm. 15 and 20 years later, a 14-year-old can't get their 16-year-old friend to buy them for them. There's going to have to ask some 40-year-old to do it. He's going to say, piss off. Like, so, the big loophole we had was the cafe that was, I don't know, a mile down the road had a vending machine in the lobby. Right. And, of course, it doesn't ask for proof of age. Yes. Presumably vending machines are no longer allowed anywhere. So, all right, smoking rates, just out of interest, Australia's smoking rates, smoking rates are low by global standards at 10%. Few countries have squeezed smoking lower than that. New Zealand is aiming for 5% by 2025. So there's a chart there. I don't know if you've got that one, Joe, on smoking rates globally. I might be able to put this one up myself. Hang on a second. Oh, actually. Oh, hang on. Yeah, I've got that one. There we go. The big... Um, Pink line is Spain, 19.8%. Estonia, Luxembourg, Finland, 12%. Australia, 10.3%. New Zealand, 9.4%. Canada, 9.1%. Norway, 9 And Iceland, 73 So international smoking rates. Okay. Oh, say, But smoking rates are falling in Australia still. The pandemic has accelerated the trend. Because smoking is for many a social activity, not being able to go to the pub meant fewer chances to smoke. Quitting smoking has been, like baking sourdough, a trend of the pandemic. <laughs> Are you baking sourdough as well? No. Okay. Yeah, strictly a career woman, not a homemaker. There we go. All right. There's basically another chart here that shows that smoking rates have declined significantly. Actually, I'll put that one up if I can. Put that one up. So back in the 2000s, the smoking rate looked to be around 22, 23% to just over 10% now. That's a big drop, actually. So the fall in smoking rates has been acute enough that major supermarkets are calling out the impact of cigarette sales on their revenue. Hmm. So tobacco use is in free fall already without having to rely on a ban that could create opportunities for organised crime and unfair employment according to this article in Crikey. That is a significant decline, according to that chart, in smoking rates from 2000. Year 2000, it was 22-ish, 22%, now just over 10. That's a lot. It's interesting. Hmm. That was from Crikey. What else we got? Okay, another topic. How are we going for time? All right, we've got Shay out of the shark tank already with the three minutes to go. Joe, you would have heard of Birds Aren't Real. I have heard of Birds Aren't Real. They're actually government drones that are monitoring everybody. Yeah, and you would have heard of the story because this would be up your alley. I would have thought this is a Joe the Tech Guy sort of story. True? <laughs> so there was oh, this... I love con conspiracy theories and the wackos that follow them. Yeah. So in Pittsburgh, Memphis, Tennessee and Los Angeles, massive billboards recently popped up declaring Birds Aren't Real. And on Instagram and TikTok, Birds Aren't Real accounts have racked up hundreds of thousands of followers and YouTube videos about it have gone viral. So it's all connected to a Gen Z fueled conspiracy theory that posits that birds do not exist and are really drone replicas installed by the US government to spy on Americans. So hundreds of thousands of young people have joined the movement wearing Birds Aren't Real t-shirts, swarming rallies and spreading the slogan. 
So it might smack of QAnon, except the creator of the movement and its followers are in on the joke. Imagine that, a political movement that's in on a joke. Anyway, so it's a parody social movement with a purpose. And essentially the guy who started it was watching some Trump rally, I think, and he thought, these guys are just nuts, this is just crazy. And he just grabbed a sign and just wrote what came into his head, which was, birds aren't real. And just started marching up and down the street because he was like, if people can come out with the rubbish these people are coming out with, I'll just say birds aren't real. And anyway, he was sort of videoed on, and the YouTube video went viral, and then he and his mate went, well, here's a gig, and they sort of milked it for as much as they could and started selling T-shirts and they actually remained in character, saying genuinely, of course, birds aren't real. And But in recent times, they've had to admit openly that, of course, birds are real and this is a satirical movement just to demonstrate the nutty conspiracies that are out there. So You've heard of Poe's Law? Yes, because you've told us. This is the one, there's nothing you could say so crazy that a Something about Christians, a creationist couldn't say it or something like that. Is that it? Basically. Yes. And and have you seen Behind the Curve yet? No. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's up on Netflix. It is a documentary who very respectfully went and talked to a bunch of creationists and their experiments to prove, not creationists, um, flat earthers, and their, to prove the earth is flat. And it's the fact that they perform these experiments and come up with the exact answer that you'd expect if the Earth was round. Right. And it's their explaining away of these results that somehow the experiment had been performed wrong. It couldn't possibly be that they were wrong and that the Earth was round. Right. The experiment must have been done wrong somehow. And it's this mindset of how, even when presented with evidence, people will justify, they will rationalise their they'll rationalise away the evidence to square with their beliefs yep. rather than change their beliefs. Yep, yep. Mel in the chat room talking about birds aren't real says, I knew it was a piss take when the apostrophe was used correctly. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, yeah, Mel? Are you and Ricky sense. just sitting back with a beer just watching the show, are you? Is that what's happening there, you two? Okay. Shay, I don't get this one. Did you want to skip out? Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, in this whole story, was that one you wanted to do, talk about, or do you want... Theranos, just to give the listeners background, is this young woman who she's part of the Silicon Valley and she did a startup where she, well, it's not yet sorted, but I think she pretended that she'd had this amazing scientific discovery where she could do blood tests, just take a drop of blood. And it's been... And test for COVID, is that right? No, not COVID. A whole range of things, diabetes. A whole, she said, this one drop of blood could accurately test for a whole range of diseases. Um, I'm not sure. I, but I anyway, do remember the hype. Yes, it didn't work. So she got funding from people like Rupert Murdoch, a whole range of wealthy benefactors. She had very influential people supporting her. And then it started to become clear that it didn't work. And how she's mounting her defence is she is saying that her boyfriend at the time was using coercive control uh. and that she, that she is just a victim 
in a coercive controlling relationship and I just wanted to as a woman just sort of call that out we cannot be pushing for seats at the table as leaders as entrepreneurs and then as soon as the going gets tough say he made me do it it's buying into the sexist rhetoric that we can't be cunning we can't be strategic we can't be you know. Yep. Okay. Says, is her name Gladys? So I just wanted to. I just wanted to put that forward, hopefully in a constructive way, just as I'd expect any bloke to call to account these sorts of things. Yeah, for another bloke. Okay, so okay. that that's kind of a little bit in line with or similar to the politician wow. Alan Tudge and his mistress, who was like a staffer, who who basically said, oh, you know, there was a power imbalance and I knew he was married but I ended up having an affair with him and and she sort of excused herself because of a power imbalance that was there. Did you hear that one or that story? There was a power imbalance. Yes. Young woman, there wasn't a power imbalance. She was the CEO. It's been widely covered. It's been very well investigated. People raised the alarm with her on a number of occasions. Yep. She was at the helm of this debacle. Yep. Yeah. Whereas whereas that other uh, woman, she was constrained by a power imbalance. She may not have had the conditions where her choices were made. Were they made as freely? I'm not sure. It was a but little... I actually liken it more to what's happened with Gladys. Where Gladys is just, you know, I wanted to give her a fair game before because, you know, she's a woman and I'm biased. <laughs> but when all the recordings came out, I just thought she had, she's taken the piss here big time. Right. That, Playing into this thing, I just fell in love and as though she's not cunning, she's not strategic, as though she wasn't, you know, potentially in on it. It's not possible. Yeah. No, 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 she wasn't in love because she she denied it being anything more than a a fuck buddy relationship. (laughs) Yes. I just think it takes away, it's a very costly case. It's a very costly argument to make. Right. We fight for these seats at these important tables, that we be of entrepreneur and leadership material, and then at the first sign of trouble, it's his fault. Okay. So just getting back to the okay, so I okay, I can see the distinction between the Alan Tudge case. I give you that. But accepting that distinction, I'm just a little bit uncomfortable with her saying there was a power a power imbalance. I'm the victim here. But she knowingly had an affair with a man who she knew was married and it was kind of like, can you really paint, you know, like, okay, there might have been a power imbalance, but you went and had an affair with a man that you knew was married. Like, is there some, it was almost like she could say, oh, I'm, I'm the victim here because of the power imbalance without, without taking any responsibility for knowing the guy was already hitched up. And hadn't yet exited his first relationship. Like, do you, I don't know, am I crazy or not? I just sort of thought I'm having trouble finding sympathy for the lady. Was what I was feeling as I was 
listening to yeah. the story. Um, I think you're probably not on your own there. Was it a, a case of a power imbalance or mm. was it a case of it had to be in secret? Mm. She wasn't able to raise, you know, some of her concerns with her girlfriends about certain things because it was a secret affair. Mm. Like, yeah. I, I have I have sympathy for her after she came out and said he kicked her out of bed and stuff. Mm. That seemed awful. It, it seemed terrible. Awful guy. Yeah. But Yeah. But she just, also has she, a bit like a jaded ex as well. Yeah. But I know she's well intentioned. Pa- mm. Parliament House seems to be a very toxic place. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So Julia says a guy can be married and not exercise his advantage in a relationship in which there is a power imbalance. Tudge seems to have been abusive. So, mm. yeah, but it's also what was her responsibility? Like at what point is it? Well, it's whether she could have said no. Mm. I, I, yes. I, you know, you're, you're married. I don't want to be with you. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised women, you know, Fall for that one. <laughs> I was going to say I'm surprised women that engage in affairs with men who are married, you know, are surprised to find out they're scumbags. Yes. Surprised <laughs> to find that he doesn't actually leave his wife and run off with them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. It's not, for us to carry. it's not a burden for us to carry. Yeah. yeah. It's a complex one. Joe, you found this one, I think, about California and a ban on assault weapons. So, dear listener... With the abortion law issue in Texas where the court said, look, well, at that point in history it was we can't overturn Roe v. Wade, we can't legalise, we can't make abortions illegal, but if this... You describe it to me, Joe. So I, I, te- the, the, the Texas law basically said the Supreme Court stops the states from enforcing the law. Yep. However, if we allow private citizens, then we haven't created or enforced this law. It's down to the private citizens to then to effectively sue the people who provide the abortions or who are tangentially involved. Yes. And people said this was opening a can of worms. This effectively was mob control and predicted that the left wing, if this went ahead, that the left wing would do the same in effectively a set of rules to implement their policies, which the Supreme Court have said they can't implement. Yep. And so this is the mirror legislation. Yep, which is essentially with guns where California Governor Gavin Newsom has pledged to empower private citizens to enforce a ban on the manufacture and sale of assault weapons in the state. We will work to create the ability for private citizens to sue anyone who manufactures, distributes or sells an assault weapon or a ghost gun kit in parts of California. So drawing inspiration from the controversial Texas law. So that was anticipated and that's what's coming about in the failed states of America. It will be very interesting to see what the Supreme Court have to say on it, whether they manage to find some loophole to ban one and not the other. Yep. Okay, so that was uh, California Gun Control Olympics. So the US... And its lapdog, Australia, have decided not to send officials, sort of diplomatic officials or government officials, to the Beijing Winter Olympics. The athletes can still go. but I mean, because we wouldn't want our diplomats to talk 
to the Chinese at all, would we? I mean, it's not like we complain that they won't pick up the phone. And here um, they've invited. What happened with the the Moscow Olympics mm-hmm. back in the eighties? Certainly, America boycotted it. Yeah. A lot of countries made it optional for their athletes, but they put a lot of pressure on them. So, from memory, Australia didn't make it, didn't ban athletes from competing, but they really put pressure on them not to. So, lots of poor. Let's face it, a swimmer who's spent half their life head down, bum up in a swimming pool following a black line isn't in much of a position to argue about the the rights and wrongs of whether they should have attended the Moscow Olympics. I think like Tracy Wickham or someone like that didn't go because I was sort of pressured not to go. So anyway, athletes can go. But so this is this is the you know, this is the government that's complaining that China's not talking and won't pick up the phone and says, well, diplomatic representations won't be going. And what does the Labor Party do? Roll over and completely agree. Penny Wong and Don Farrell of the Australian Labor Party put out a statement, Labor supports the decision not to send officials and dignitaries to the Beijing Winter Olympics in February. We hold deep concerns about the ongoing human rights abuses in China, including towards the Uyghurs and other ethnic and religious minorities and about athlete safety, given questions about the treatment of tennis player Peng Shui. Oh, for God's sake, you're not worried about the human rights in China. It's nothing to do with human rights. You've been whinging and bitching that you can't have a diplomatic conversation and you decided not to show up and labour. Shame on you, Labor. Shame on you. How hard would it have been to say, these guys are arguing about not being able to talk? Let's go and talk. Oh, Jesus Christ. Just pathetic, Labor. Pathetic. Oh, there was a call for a Royal Commission into Rupert Murdoch's News Corp and a Senate Environment and Communications Reference Committee published its report and it said that there should be a royal commission but the government and Labor have agreed that there shouldn't be. Once again, Labor's rolled over on that one as well as to whether there should be. The Murdoch press. Yes. Castigating them, which they'll do anyway. Yes, exactly. Afraid of the Murdoch press. Meanwhile, we've got a new head of the ACCC, Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. This is, the, this is the group that is supposed to look into monopoly power where it is detrimental to the interests of Australia. And good news, well... Uh, a woman! That's a woman, yes. Progress! Good news. Good news. <laughs> Gina Cascotlieb is a woman. The bad news is... She's not just a mate of the Murdoch, she's a director of the Murdoch Family Trust. What could go wrong? And she's the chair of Australia's competition regulator. She's been a lawyer for Lachlan Murdoch. That's in itself not enough to disqualify her. There's an article I'm reading from Crikey. Top lawyers work for the biggest clients. In the specialised field of competition law, any serious contender for the top job who isn't a lifetime public servant, is going to have a history with some of the biggest companies in the country. So fair enough. 
that she has worked for the Murdochs. But she's a director of the Murdochs Family Trust, Cruden Financial Services, with a 12.5% vote. Ah. So that's not just a role for a talented lawyer, but a trusted insider. I mean, really, and that's who the government has put in. <laughs> As a chair of the Australian Competition Regulator. It's a game of mates, isn't it? Well, the Australian Financial Review put a glowing review about her. Oh, the job. Funny that. Right. And first time we've ever had a female chairperson, so everyone's a winner. So I haven't read Labor's response. Have you? So are they even going to respond? Who knows? But <laughs> i got a feeling they'll just roll over. See? <laughs> okay. All right. Let, we, we have to finish off with a bit of COVID stuff. Let's, let's just go through a few COVID things. So... Here, I, dear listener, I live in the leafy western suburbs of Brisbane, in a suburb called The Gap, and there was a thing from John D. Bush, our state member, where the Premier spoke about the vaccination rates in different suburbs. And now this was last week, so this is probably about four or five days old. So 95.1% of residents in The Gap have had both doses and a staggering 99.4% of residents of The Gap have had at least one dose. So 99.4% is a high figure. Now, there's roughly 13,000 people in The Gap age six, uh, 15 or over. And if you work out the maths, that means of the 13,136 people, only 79 have not had at least one jab. That's an amazing figure. We're very white, middle-class, law-abiding citizens here at The Gap. That's, that's the, in a nutshell. I, I'm surprised there are more libertarians than that. No, we're very no, not here, so there you go. Yeah. On the 14th of December in Victoria, the, the population that was fully vaxxed was 91% and unvaxxed. 6.4%. That doesn't add up. It was 91.9% fully vaxxed and 6.4% yeah, yeah. unvaxxed. How's and that? then 3% are partially vaxxed or whatever. Uh, oh, okay. So that's a high proportion of people in Victoria fully vaxxed, 91%, 91.9%. Let's say, let's call it 92%. And in the ICU unit at that time, the, the percentage in ICU that were fully vaxxed was 9% and the unvaxxed was 88%. So that's a pretty good indication of the value of getting vaccinated. So I should put that one up. There we go. So, yeah. But vaccines don't work. No, because people still get COVID and they can still transmit it. Yes. Yeah. But the whole point is they don't get as sick and they don't end up in ICU nearly as often. So only 6.4% of the population unvaxxed, but they make up 88% of the people in ICU presumably, for COVID. That's an interesting statistic, I thought. Hmm. Take that one off the screen. Still on COVID, 
Good story out of Italy. The stratagem was the latest and perhaps most original episode of vaccine evasion in the struggle between Italy's government and the country's anti-vaccine faction. On Thursday morning at a vaccination centre, a veteran nurse faced something she had never seen before. She was preparing to give the man a dose of COVID vaccine when she realised that the small patch of arm he offered in a gap between his sweatshirt and T-shirt looked much pinker than his face. When she touched it, she realised what was wrong. Rubber foam, she said. It was made of rubber foam. The man, whose identity is not disclosed, wore a thick theatre corset covered in rubber foam to which two foam arms were attached. (laughs) She said it was quite well made. His goal was to obtain a vaccination certificate enabling him to go to work without actually getting the shot. So they've had lots of people. His goal was to go to work whilst being potentially (laughs) infectious. Yes, and the syringe would have been put into the fake foam. I like this one, the nurse. The nurse said, it was so humiliating thinking that a nurse cannot tell the difference between rubber foam and skin. <laughs> like, not, not just you idiot, but like you bastard, you thought, oh, that's stupid. Well, he was that stupid. He thought everyone else was. Yeah, it's just insulting and humiliating for her. It would be insulting. Yeah. It's like mm. the story of the Dunning-Kruger. Yes. Um, are, you, are you aware of that one? Yes, Dunning-Kruger is the uh, but, but people the, who aren't very story. smart end up killing themselves type. No, uh, people who don't know. People uh, who are dumb don't know how dumb they are. That's it, yes. Don't know what they're. But it was the guy who robbed a bank and mm. there's clear security footage of him mm. and the police pick him up and he goes, but how did you know it was me? I used the lemon juice. And they're going, What? Right. He said, how did you know it was me? I used the lemon juice. Apparently he thought because lemon juice is an invisible ink, it would make him invisible to the security cameras. Oh, yes. And he'd sprayed it on his face and taken a photograph, but he'd <laughs> misaimed the camera. And so the photograph he took was of the ceiling behind him or the wall behind him and not of him. And he thought it had made him invisible to the camera. And so he was absolutely certain that he could hold up the bank. They're going, hashtag not an organ donor anymore. So people who are anti-vaxxers and who were previously organ donors are now revoking their status as an organ donor because the government is saying that you need to be vaccinated if you want to receive an organ donation. So that's been trending, hashtag not an organ donor anymore. That's sad. So hang on, the government is saying that people who have suppressed immune systems should be vaccinated. Yes. What a surprise. Yes. And gee, the government with organ donations has been putting restrictions on people for a long time saying, you want a lung transplant? You've got to quit smoking. Guess what? You don't get a lung unless you quit smoking. Terrible invasion of civil liberties, but that's the way it is. Yeah. You want a liver transplant? Quit drinking. Omicron is the latest variant. That was interesting that they skipped over in the Greek alphabet new because it would confuse, and new is NU, it would confuse people if they called it the new variant, then people would think this means different to old. And they also had to skip over G, XI, which in the Greek alphabet, uncomfortably close to the name of the um, Chinese well, leader. Isn't it, isn't it Kai in Greek? I don't know, but... 
That was all a bit messy. So they skipped over nu and Z and went straight to Omicron. Next one will be pi. Don't see any reason. Maybe they'll skip over that because pi is used so much in pi r squared, etc. Uh, and people will want the pi variant. Yes. It's very tasty. <laughs> Rho, R-H-O, would they need to skip over that one? Well, yeah, Possibly not. Eggs. Sigma, sigma variant. Anyway, maybe you sent me this one. In your own words, how would you describe libertarians? House cats, they are convinced of their fierce independence while utterly dependent on the system they don't appreciate or understand. Might have got that from you, Joe. Austria, this one's interesting. Austria is reaching the point where they're going to force people to get the vaccine or they'll be fined. So most countries seem to have taken a position where if you don't get the vaccine or you can't work or you can't visit these places... But Austria seems to be going to the position of saying you have to be vaccinated, otherwise we'll fine you. I'm not so sure on that one. Anybody thoughts on that one? I'm fine with that. You're fine with that one? No, it was just a pun. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Got me. That oh, seems a no, step I, too far. Does anyone want to support that uh, that Austrian idea of finding so, so people? The courts so far with the mandates have said, effectively, there is a blanket ban on people moving around, but there is an exemption to that ban if you take precautions, and the precautions are that you're vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So they're saying that excluding people that effectively the not allowed into shops, not allowed into cafes, whatever it is, is not picking on the, the, the unvaccinated. They're saying that is a blanket across the board, but you can get an exemption, and the exemption is get a vaccine. Yes. So you are opting out of the exclusion, uh, of the exemption, sorry. Correct. Does, does that make sense? Yes, it does. I mean, my argument, my thoughts are, like, we're trying to protect the commons here. So Mm. we're saying if you want to use uh, the facilities that civilization has built up, the commons, then we have the right to regulate it. But if somebody just wants to stay at home in their underpants in their mother's basement and play video games and not get vaccinated, then they should be allowed to if that's what they want to do, I think. You can can order online. There Mm. are plenty of ways that you can not interact. But the second you start coming into places where Mm. the the, the flip of it is you are a risk to people who are high risk. Mm. And either they should exclude themselves or you should exclude yourself. Mm. And why should the burden be on the people who cannot avail themselves of the vaccines when the people can avail themselves of the vaccines. We're also going to reach a point where, you know, why we're doing all this is because we don't want the hospital system to be overrun and that's the real risk in my mind as to and the the real justification. And if we got to a position where there were so many people vaccinated and really the handful of people left who are unvaccinated wasn't going to cause a problem with the hospital being overrun, then I'm... Kind of okay with them not being vaccinated. Sorry, I had to finish that. Off you go. Yeah. The Mayor of London yesterday declared a major incident mm-hmm. because the number of Omicron cases has risen so quickly. They now have so many emergency service workers off sick 
that they cannot respond to emergency calls in their usual time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not even these people are in hospital yet. These people are just off with a cough or whatever. Mm. But so many of them are off that it's having an impact. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So anyway, in the chat room, I think Julia said uh, in reference to this Austrian law, I think that goes too far. Dire Straits said, well said, Joe. Mel says, it takes a lot of work from the state to ensure they are staying in their basements. Well, you don't have to ensure they're there. You're just checking that they're not in the pub, aren't you? And we're sort of setting up systems for that. So anyway, I think Austria's gone too far with that one myself. And... Last but not least, only 1.7% of people in PNG are vaccinated. They're in for a terrible time once things get going there. So It's all right, Jesus will save them. Yeah, well, the role of Christianity, nearly all Papua New Guineans, 99.2% are Christian. And the religious landscape in the country is powerfully influenced by Pentecostal and Evangelical churches. And in PNG, Christianity provides not only the promise of eternal salvation, but biblically inscribed frameworks and prophetic ideas that inform how people live and view the world around them. And uh, they've got a strong interest in the end of the world, as this signals the return of Jesus Christ. And crucially, the imminent return of Christ is heralded by the world's rapid moral decline and humanity being branded with the mark of the beast, a process mandated by Satan. As such, many Papua New Guinean Christians continuously and fearfully scan the horizon for the definitive sign. Anyway, religion's got a lot to do with the problems in Papua New Guinea. There we go. All right, 9.31, that's a two-hour podcast. That'll keep you going for a while. Thank you, Shay and Joe, for your efforts so far. I don't know when we will be back because I'm going to be having Christmas and I'm going to be down the coast for a while. We'll just message each other privately and see who's around and what they're doing. I'd say by early January I'll have been outraged by enough things that I will feel like getting behind a microphone and ranting about it. You probably will too. So I'll keep collecting my articles and bits and more. Be back at some stage. If you're not following us on Facebook, then you should because that will tell you what's going to be happening. And, yeah, final word, if you are not a patron, then think about becoming one. Again, watch the Facebook page because if I get a decision on that court case, then uh, that's where you'll find out about it. And holy smokes, if it comes out in our favour, my goodness, it's going to be a big year. And, yeah. Thank you to everyone in the chat room in particular. It's really good having people in the chat room. It really adds a lot to it, knowing that there's somebody actually listening rather than just the three of us chatting amongst ourselves and not knowing. So it's it's really fun having the chat room there with people commenting. So thank you for that. And so it's goodbye from me. Talk to you sometime in three weeks or so-ish. Talk to you then. Shane and Joe, say your goodbyes. Jay. And it's a good note from him. All right. That was a very awkward goodbye for the last show of the year. But anyway, it'll do for the moment. Talk to you next year. Bye for now. Well, you probably wonder what uh, politicians do on uh, Christmas Eve. Well, it, when it's drought, feed cattle. Now, you don't have to convince me that the climate's not changing. It is changing. And my problem's always been whether you believe a new tax is going to change it back. Look, I just don't want the government anymore in my life. I'm sick of the government being in my life. Yeah, and the other thing is I think we've got to acknowledge is 
you know, there's a higher authority that's beyond our comprehension and right up there in the sky. Unless we understand that that's got to be respected, then we're just fools and we're going to get nailed.